Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Kyle Riesenberg. I am one of the pastors here. Like Maddie said, I'm typically more over in Hitchcock, so that's normally where I am on Sunday morning, but I'm excited to be here with you guys this morning. If you haven't been here the last two weeks, we have been walking through a sermon series on rest. We have been engaging with what does it look like to have a still life and to be still before God. So the first week we looked at how we have been created for rest and what the implications of that are for our life. And then last week, we engaged with why is it such a struggle for us to rest in our culture and in our personal lives. And then this morning, we are going to be engaging with how Jesus has redeemed rest for us. What does that look like? And I'm not sure where each of us are this morning as we come into this space. Some of us maybe are feeling pretty run down and weary. Maybe we're feeling a lot of worry and stress and anxiety. Maybe you're feeling lively and caffeinated, you're at peace and you're at rest, or maybe we're somewhere probably in between there. Wherever you are, my prayer has been and will be this morning that this is a space where we can experience rest, that right now we can come to the presence of Jesus and we can experience his rest and peace. So that's what I'm going to pray for right now. Would you guys join me in that? And then we're going to dive in. Father God, we... uh, Yes, we want to come before you. We want to cast all of our anxieties upon you because you care for us. We thank you that you take those that you desire to give us rest and peace, that you have fought from the beginning for your people to rest in you and trust in your care and provision. Jesus, we thank you that we can experience that in you. Like Maddie was saying, we can come to you. We don't have to have a list of things done before we do that. We can come to you and sit at your feet and experience your shalom. And I pray that for us this morning in this place, this would be a place of peace. And God, I pray that it wouldn't just stay here. I pray that we would continue to have rhythms of rest in our life where we seek you, Jesus, and we sit at your feet and we find peace and rest in you. We thank you that you are the God of rest and that in you we can experience peace. It's in your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, I think... Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and pull it out. If you don't have a Bible, there are some at the ends of rows. There are some up here on the stage if people need them. We don't have slides today, so we're going old school and we're just using paper. So we are going to flip. If you have a Bible, go ahead and flip open to Matthew chapter 12. It is the first book of the New Testament. It will be right after the book of Malachi, but before the book of Mark. We're just going to pick up in the first verse there. All right, if you're flipping there, keep going. So we'll look at verse 1, and then we're going to stop, and we're going to make some observations. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 1, says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grains and to eat. Okay, so a couple things we're just going to stop and look at. I think the first thing that we need to see and engage with is what the Sabbath is. My guess is for most of us, we have some idea or some preconceived notion as to what the Sabbath is, right? Maybe we come into this thinking that the Sabbath is just a day where we don't work, we cease from doing work, and that's what that is. Or maybe we think, oh, it's on Sunday, we get together with our church family. Maybe we have uh, different ideas from childhood where we spend the whole day in church and we're singing songs and praying all day. Maybe that's what it looks like for us. Or maybe some of us think it's just an ancient ritual that no longer has any effect in our life. Or maybe we're in a spot where, like, I have no idea. I read that in Scripture, and I have no idea what the Sabbath actually is. Uh, Wherever you are, here is what the Israelites would have thought. So the ancient Israelites, 
the Sabbath to them started on Friday evening at sundown, and it went till Saturday evening at sundown. And it was the seventh day of the week. The first time God commands his people to practice the Sabbath is right after he frees them from slavery in Egypt. So God demonstrates this, his awesome power. He brings his people out of slavery. They cross the Red Sea, and he demolishes the Egyptian army in the sea. And then we read in Exodus chapter 16. You don't have to flip there. I'll just read it for you. If you want to, feel free. It's the second book of the Bible. But we're going to look at Exodus 16. We're going to look at a passage there. So Exodus 16, verse 22, says, On the sixth day, oh, and to set the scene a little bit, so God's people are hungry. They're in the desert. They just crossed the Red Sea. And God's providing manna from heaven for them to eat. And that's kind of where we're picking up in the story. So it says, On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there are no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. Okay, so on the day of the Sabbath, the people of Israel were not to go out and to gather this manna that God had been providing for them. And the reference to it stinking and having worms comes from earlier on in this story. God had said, I'm going to provide this for you daily. You don't have to gather more than what you need for each day, but God's people are, you know, a little stubborn. They go out and they collect more than what they need, and that next morning, the leftover that they had began to rot, and it had worms in it. So that's where that comes from. So God is literally calling his people to trust in his provision for them. Trust that on the sixth day, there's going to be enough for the sixth day and for the seventh when they collect it, and that on that seventh day, it's not going to rot like it had before, that it'll last. It's really a beautiful picture the people of God are called to just trust that God is going to provide, that they don't need to do anything on that seventh day. They are free from going out to gather bread. God has provided for them. We're going to look at the next couple verses and see how that goes with the people of Israel. So in uh, verse 27, it says, On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Just a few things for us. It's crazy that right after God had demonstrated, first of all, freeing them from Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, providing manna for them, he told them they don't need to go out on the seventh day, and what do they do? They go out on the seventh day to collect bread, and it's not there because God told them it wouldn't be. So even right after God institutes the Sabbath, his people struggle to keep it, and his people struggle to live at rest in his provision. They struggle to trust in his care. And then I think we also need to see that God gives them the Sabbath. He gives them this day of rest. He desires them to rest in his provision and his care. So the Sabbath is when the nation of Israel would cease from their labor. They would use this day as a way to rest and to remember Yahweh. It was a practical discipline, of course, but it was loaded with symbolism. The Sabbath flowed from what God did on the seventh day of creation, 
on the seventh day, God Sabbathed. He ceased from creating. And if you remember back to the first week, Vivek told us that God then settled in with his creation. So it wasn't that he stopped doing anything. He then was with his creation. He ceased from creating, and now he was governing his creation. And when the Sabbath is celebrated, Israelites would remember that. They would remember how God had provided for them, how God was providing for them, and the promise that he was going to continue to provide and that he provide eternal rest for them one day. So with this in mind, let's look back to Matthew. We're going to do one more verse. So let's look at Matthew verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 2. It says, but when the Pharisees saw it, so when the Pharisees saw Jesus walking with his disciples through the grain field, his disciples are picking a head of grain and eating it. This is what the Pharisees did. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees see this. They see them eating the grain, and they get a little upset. So the teachers of the day had these laws that they had made to protect the Sabbath. This was a holy day. It's one of the Ten Commandments is to keep the Sabbath day holy. So the teachers of the law had different things that they had set in place to help protect this day so that people would experience rest during this time. And one of the things that people weren't allowed to do is to harvest. So as the Pharisees see the disciples of Jesus walking through the grain field, picking grain and eating it, they consider that harvesting. So they say, Rabbi Jesus, your disciples are breaking the Sabbath law. We'll read the rest of the story and let's look at how Jesus responds to them. Starting in verse 3, he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence? which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what it means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath." So in response to the Pharisees' objections, Jesus appeals to three things. The first thing he appeals to is what David did. David was on the run for his life. King Saul was trying to kill him. He didn't have food. He just had to get out of Dodge. So he runs to the high priest and he says, I need food. And the only food that the high priest had at that point in time was the bread of the presence. And this represented the 12 tribes of Israel and it was set before the Lord and only the priests were permitted to eat it. But during that time of need, the priest allowed David to eat this food, not only him, but his men. So Jesus is pointing out here that there is an exception in the law that was made for the king. The next thing that Jesus points out is what the priests do every Sabbath day. On the Sabbath, the priests are at work. They're sacrificing animals for the atonement of sin for the people of Israel. They are working, and they're working in the presence of God. They're in the temple working in his presence. Jesus goes on to claim that something even greater than the temple is there amongst the Pharisees at that moment in time. And then the last thing that Jesus appeals to is the prophet Hosea. So in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, it reads, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God doesn't desire a list of rules that neglect mercy towards people. Jesus' followers, his disciples, were hungry, 
and they were walking through this field, and Jesus allowed them to eat. The Pharisees, instead of having mercy and feeding the hungry, looked to man-made rules that required great sacrifice. Jesus then ends this conversation with the Pharisees by declaring that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is this title that's often used to refer to Jesus throughout the Gospels. It comes from a prophetic vision that Daniel had in the book of Daniel in chapter 7. Basically, what Jesus is saying here is that I am God. The Sabbath was meant to remember Yahweh and to remember his provision for his people. It was meant to reflect back on that seventh day of creation when God Sabbathed and then was Lord over his creation. Now Jesus is saying, I am that Lord. I am God. I am the king from the line of David that you have been waiting for. I am the one that's greater than the temple. I am the one that shows mercy and provides for my people so that they can rest. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And for us, there are two reasons why I think this story is important for us to engage with. And the first one is what I just said, that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. In Jesus, we find our rest. We find peace with God. Look back to the end of Matthew chapter 11 with me. Maddie just shared it with us. We're going to look at it again. It's probably a pretty familiar passage with most of us. Beginning in Matthew 11, verse 28, we're going to read through the end of the chapter. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, come to me. The first part of finding rest is coming to Jesus. If you haven't trusted in Jesus as the Lord of your life, meaning you haven't turned over the direction of your life to him and trusted him for leadership, and if you haven't trusted in him to be your savior, meaning that every mistake you made, he has paid for when he went on the cross, man, I encourage you to wrestle with, why haven't you done that? And then I, I encourage you to do that, to turn your life over to Jesus. If you have done that, if you do trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is something we still have to do. We still need to come to him. We still need to find rest in him. This is, is a continual practice in our life. For me, I experienced this last Saturday. Some of you guys may know we had a men's retreat um, last Friday, Saturday night, and it was in Bowling Green. So I got home Saturday, late evening, we have two kids, a three-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old, so I put my two boys to bed. I was pretty exhausted, but we were expecting another one, another, a baby girl in April, so we got a lot going on in our house. Um, but I was like, there's things to do. We're painting the nursery. We have other stuff that we're doing in preparation, and I was like, man, I could do some of this stuff, but I'm preaching on rest next Sunday, and I feel tired. Maybe it would be good for me to just sit and not do those things. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to do that, so I started to draw a bath. Yes, I like to soak just like any other good man. So I drew my bath. I got this book that I've been reading that I've been enjoying, and I cracked open a nice Diet Canada Dry ginger ale, right? Come on, who doesn't want that? So <laughs> these are all things that I find enjoyable. But when I was doing this and I was soaking and reading and sipping my ginger ale, I was not feeling rest. I was not feeling like at peace. This was stuff that I enjoy to do, but it wasn't really bringing rest. In fact, I felt pretty foolish. It kind of felt like a waste of time. 
But in the midst of that, I definitely felt the Holy Spirit meet me, probably because I was teaching this Sunday and it was in my mind. Just, man, I need to invite Jesus into this. So I took a second and started to pray. It was really awkward. I didn't know what I was doing. But just, man, Jesus, would you meet me here? Would you help me make this restful? And guys, I, I don't know how to describe it other than there is a tangible difference between what I was doing when I was just trying to do stuff and when I actually engaged my heart with Jesus and came to him. So for us, this is so important because our rest is found in Jesus, first and foremost, period. We need to come to him. And the second reason I think this story is important for us is because I think, at least myself, it's easy to just want a list of things to do to find rest, right? We either want them so that it protects this time that we have with God and so we don't offend him, kind of like the Pharisees, or we want it so basically somebody just tells us, tell me what to do. I want to find rest. Tell me what I need to do. You don't have to raise your hands for this, but how many of us have been frustrated that over the first two weeks of this sermon series, we haven't really given you any practicals on how to find rest? Yeah? <laughs> I know on the team I'm involved with on campus, they have not been excited about that. Um, it can be really easy to just look for a list of things to do to check off to, man, then I will find rest if I just do these things. And in some regards, I think that's what the Pharisees were doing. They had this list of things to do to protect this day that was supposed to be a day of rest for people, right? Their heart was to protect this day and make it holy and help people to observe it so that they would find rest. But it doesn't seem like people were experiencing rest in the weight of all these laws that they had to keep. And I don't know if you guys know this, but that metaphor of the yoke that Jesus uses in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, it was a common expression in the day. Rabbis or different teachers of the law would ask people to yoke themselves to the law. So it's beautiful. Here we have Jesus freeing us from that yoke. He says, come to me, take my yoke upon you, not this heavy yoke of the law that's weighing you down and oppressing you. Take my yoke upon you. It's easy. It is light. So as we look at practicals this morning, which we're going to do, please remember that these things will not bring you rest in and of themselves. Rest comes from peace with God. The things we do are then ways that we engage with that truth. Okay, with that in mind, I have some tangible practice, practices that we can implement into our life to help us engage with rest. There are not many, and they may seem very broad, so I'm sorry in advance. The first one is simply to sit and listen to God. Right? That's the theme of this whole year for us as a church, that we would sit, listen, and respond. So it would be pretty sad if I didn't mention that first. So we are going to sit and we're going to listen to God. Remember back with me to Genesis 1. God's creating, and in verse 2, the earth is described as without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. To the ancient Jewish reader of scriptures, they would have seen this dark, formless, water-filled world as chaos. And then we see God taking this chaos and bringing order to it. Church, God brings order to chaos. He has been doing this since the beginning. And think about the implications that that has for your life. How many of us walk around thinking that our schedules are chaotic and frantic, that we have too, men, too much to do and not enough time? What would it look like for you to invite God into your schedule and ask him for help ordering your life? to sit and to listen to his input for your life. 
to invite him in to help bring order to the chaos of our schedules. Prayer and planning is just a simple practice that we can do to help engage with that. The practice of taking time each week to sit at God's feet and to ask for wisdom. And when I do these things, when I'm engaging in this, the things that I engage God with are simply, what do you want me to do this week? Who are the people you want me to hang out with? What conversations do you want me to have? How can I use my time this week to support and encourage my family? My wife and I have, you know, different schedules. I'm on campus some nights. She's working um, at the urgent care some nights as a nurse. And so for me, it's thinking through, okay, I have these nights with Steph. How are we going to use these both for the building up of our family but for our relationship? So I want to sit. I want to ask God to bring order and ask for his wisdom. So that's the first thing. We need to sit at God's feet and we need to listen. The second thing is we need to lay aside the things that distract us from Jesus. When I was thinking about this, I thought of Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. And it, the author writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What are the things, what are the weights and the sins that cling closely to us that we need to let go of? What are the weights and the sins that cling closely that we need to let go of? Another way to look at this is what are the things that distract us from keeping our eyes focused on Jesus? I was reading this study about Americans and our obsession or our draw to our telephones. It's pretty crazy. I'm going to just share kind of three stats with you. There's a lot more. Uh, the first one that I found, and I thought this was kind of crazy, it found that on average people check their phones every 12 minutes. So that's like five times an hour, and they added it up. I think it's like 80 times a day we're checking our phones. It also found that 31% of people feel regular anxiety at any point when they're separated from their phone. Right? <laughs> it sounds like people relate. And then it found that 60% reported experiencing occasional stress when their phone is off or out of reach. And then this one I thought was crazy, but I was talking to somebody last night, and they're like, oh, yeah, I think I relate to that. So maybe it's not as crazy as I thought. Um, they found that 40% of people would rather lose their voice for the day than not have their phone for a day which I think is wild. I'd rather not verbally talk to somebody and have my phone. <laughs> that seems crazy to me. So it's easy for me to read this stuff and think, man, people are crazy. We are way too attached to these little computers we have in our pocket. But guys, that's totally me. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of, it was about a year, year and a half ago or so when I lost my phone for the day. That day was full of a lot of stress. I was thinking about how I couldn't get my messages, how was I going to keep up with work, I couldn't check my email on my phone, but I had my computer, but for some reason that was something I thought about. My thoughts dwelt on where was this thing. I tore the house apart looking for it several times. There were multiple times where the seat cushions were off of the couch, and I was trying to figure out where it was. It was a day full of angst for me. The end of the day, this is pretty funny, it was actually in the freezer. I guess I had put in it, yeah, not a common place you'd look for your phone. 
I had put it on top of the fridge, I guess, and opened the freezer door, and it had fallen in without me noticing. So, end of the day, that's where it was. <laughs> I share this to say I am right there. I am way too attached to my phone. I, uh, yeah, I look to it way too much. And as helpful, as amazing as it can be, it also brings all kinds of stress in our life, right? Just think about texting with me. When we text, we're literally trying to have conversations with different people about different things all at the same time. That's pretty stressful. We use it to look at social media. Again, this is something that can be really helpful and something that can be good, but it also so easily draws us into this mindset of comparison. We easily compare our life to the other people that we see. This breeds discontentment and potentially strife with our brothers and sisters. And it just becomes something that brings such distraction in our life, right? As meaningless as it can be, we look up all kinds of meaningless stats about our sports teams for like umpteenth time that day. It really has no effect on our life, but we do that all the time. Um, maybe we get distracted and we play video games so that we disengage with what's going on around us. Or there's all kinds of other ways that we can use it to just distract ourselves. And one thing that I've started to do solely at my wife's encouragement, not because of my own strength or my willingness to do this, but my wife has encouraged me in it, is to set my phone on the counter when I get home. So I get home and I set it there, and the goal is that then I will be present with my family, that I won't be checking emails at the expense of my time with them, that I'm not trying to talk to other people, but I'm engaged with them. And this is surprisingly hard for me. When my kids are distracted and doing something else and I'm close to the counter, I'll often like look at it. I won't totally unlock it, but you know enough so that you can read the messages on the front of the screen. I do that all the time because I'm afraid I'm gonna be missing out on something. But I've also found that when I do engage with it and just leave it there and try not to remember it, man, it brings such freedom. It reminds me that my phone isn't the thing that runs my life. So whether it's your phone or it's something else in your life, what are the weights and the sin that cling closely that you need to let go of? Okay, we got two more, and they're going to be kind of quick hits. The first one is community. In studying out rest, I have just become convinced that part of finding rest in Jesus is engaging with the family of God. We see this throughout the Old Testament as the nation of Israel is commanded to do all these different uh, rhythms of life as they're supposed to practice the Sabbath, these feasts, and all these other things. It's very communal. They're to celebrate these things together. We see it in the early church when we read the book of Acts. We see this community that gathers together and celebrates and has life together. They pray for each other. They care for each other. They're just with each other. And I think when we engage in a community, engage with a community like this, it can help us be free of the things that so easily distracts us. So community, we need to be invested in the family of God. And then the last thing is we need times of remembrance and celebration. We need to take time to reflect on how God is at work in our lives. Again, this is all over scripture. The Old Testament, when we read it, we often see the nation of Israel building altars to remember and celebrate how God had moved in a certain or specific way. And these things were there so that when they would walk by, they'd see it. And they'd be like, oh yeah, I remember. God did something really awesome here. 
And we see it throughout the epistles as we read the New Testament. There's all kinds of commands to celebrate and to remember and to rejoice. So I think the question for us is, what do we do to remember the faithfulness of God? What do we do to remember the faithfulness of God? I can't remember the context this was in. It was sometime late fall, but Shaw had either encouraged the staff team or the whole church, again, I can't remember, to write down kingdom moments. Basically, times when we have seen God at work and we've seen him do something incredible. So I was somewhat engaged with that this school year. I have a few pages at the back of my journal that I'm just trying to leave blank, and then I'll go and just scribble down, man, I was praying for this, God moved in this way, or God did this crazy thing in this person's life. So I've been trying to do that and keep up with that. And I was reflecting back on them yesterday and just thinking through it, and it brought me all kinds of encouragement, just remembering how God had been at work in my life and the life of the people around me. And it's really funny because the like, latest dated one is six months ago, which really isn't that long. But for me, I have trouble remembering what happened last week. So then remembering what happened six months ago can be really difficult, and I tend to forget really easily. So having something tangibly written down that I can reflect back on and remember how God was at work is super encouraging. So I want to encourage you guys, write down times when you see God move. Make a note, build an altar, do something so that you can tangibly look back and reflect and remember his goodness in your life. All right, another way that the family of God practice and celebrates remembering his goodness and his greatness is by celebrating communion together. This is something that Jesus instituted during his last meal with his disciples. It would have felt really familial, really close-knit. They were around a table. They are eating a meal. And this is what we read in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three 23 to 26. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are going to break bread together this morning, and when we do that, we are remembering our King Jesus. We're remembering what he has done for us, and we're remembering that he will come again. So we're going to celebrate it a little bit different today. We have communion elements that we'll start passing out, and we're going to pass them around the rows. And what we're going to do is we're going to take it, and we're going to take communion, and then we're going to pass the tray to our neighbor. The idea is that this will be a celebration where our family gets together and we celebrate remembering God together. If you are here and you are wrestling with, I don't know what I believe about Jesus. I don't know if I trust in him. I haven't done that yet. First and foremost, we are so glad you are here. Thank you for coming. You are welcome. Please know that. We are excited to have you here today. We don't want you to feel pressure to celebrate something that you don't believe in. Instead, we would just encourage you to pass the tray on and don't feel as much as you can any pressure to take it. Instead, we would just encourage you to sit and wrestle with what is holding you back from trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior.